chapter 6. We're going to continue. We've been in, in a study of, of the Gospel of Mark, and, and Lord willing, we'll continue uh, all the way through. Uh, we'll break in the summer, uh, but, but we're going we're gonna to continue to travel with, with the Gospel writer Mark as he introduces us to Jesus and his ministry. So we'll be in chapter 6. Um, we're actually going to look at the first six verses, and we'll read that in a moment. But at the outset, let me, let, me, um, let me start by saying that if you regularly, regularly watch the local news, I'm pretty certain that, that you have heard two names quite often uh, over the past six months or so. So if you're a local news watcher here in, in Hampton, uh, there's two names that, that I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that you've heard a number of times. So, so first one, uh, Alan Iverson. So maybe, maybe you've heard that name. He... Uh, within the past couple of months, he was inducted into the, the, the College Basketball Hall of Fame, and he was recognized at, at the Final Four. Uh, there, he just most recently this, this week, he hosted a high school basketball tournament where they had a, a number of, of national prospects here at, I think it was a, 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 in Churchland in Portsmouth for a, a tournament. Uh, and it, was, it, made, it made local headlines because Alan Iverson, uh, he's, he's, he's from here. He's one of us. He's a local he actually, he, went, he was a two-sport star at Bethel High School. Uh, he went on to play at the University of Georgetown basketball, and then he played for the 76ers. And, and some would say that he is pound for pound the best basketball player that's ever played the game. Now, whatever you think about Allen Iverson, he, he, had, he had skills in, in basketball that, that are unrivaled. Um, but he's one of us, and so as his popularity has grown, the residents of Hampton we, we've latched onto him. He's, he's one of us. And so when he comes back, there's, there's celebration, there's fanfare, there's, there's traffic jams, people trying to get in to where he's going to be. Crowds gather. But another name, maybe, maybe Alan Iverson isn't, isn't uh, on your list, um, but, but maybe you, you've heard the name Katherine Johnson. Now, I must confess, I, I hadn't heard of her until recently, but, but recently there was a movie that came out that highlighted her specifically. She was one of the main characters of a new movie called Hidden Figures, it's a great movie. I, I would recommend going to see it. Uh, but, but what that movie does is it chronicles Katherine Johnson's role as a, a NASA mathematician. So as, as the space race is, is heating up and, and she plays a, a very significant role, she, she, she works with numbers and, and these projections and calculations with launch angles and, and reentry, all, all things that are foreign to me. But she knew what she was doing and she played a major role and she lived and worked in Hampton for, for decades and so like Alan Iverson, she, she's one of our own. And so as, as the, the national media is, is talking about her and celebrating her, we're, we're proud to be from Hampton, where she's from. Well, I just, I mention these two individuals because when one of our own attracts attention, here's, here's the uh, principle I'm trying to establish. When, when they attract attention and adoration from a larger group, whether it's on a basketball court or, or in a, a discussion of space travel, it's, it's natural and it's in fact fitting for us to claim them as our own, and, and to celebrate them. When our passage this morning, we're going to see an entirely different response to a hometown hero. I mean, if you think about it, we have Alan Iverson, we have, we have uh, Catherine Johnson. Well, on a totally different level, we have Jesus of Nazareth. If, if there ever was a hometown hero who, who should be celebrated and, and welcomed, it would be Jesus. And so Mark's gospel, as his, his ministry and his teaching, it's growing, his, his reputation is growing. And so people are hearing from all over Galilee and, and the region, and they're flocking to see him and to hear him. And when he returned to his, his lowly hometown, Nazareth, this, this little town 
in Galilee, you would think that the red carpet would be rolled out. Jesus is coming back. But that's, that's not what happens. We're going to see in our passage that when Jesus returns home, the response is, is not what we would expect. And instead, it's, it's the opposite of what we might expect. So, so if you have your Bibles in Mark chapter 6, I'm just going to read the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. So you can follow along as I read the return of Jesus to his hometown. Verse 1, when he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples, they followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty do and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about he went about among the villages teaching. Well, it's a, it's a short passage. We have six verses that we want to work through, and, and so it, it breaks down very, very easily, I think, into, into two sections. And so if you're taking notes, uh, uh, part one, section one, we have the offended crowd, verses one through three. We see Jesus coming and speaking, and, and the crowd is, is offended. And then verses four through six, we have the rejected prophet. So the offended crowd and the rejected prophet. Well, let's look first at verses one through three and the offended crowd. So our, our passage picks up right where we left off last week. So that's one of the benefits of, of working through a gospel. We, we end with one story, and, and right here in chapter 6, he's, he's left Jairus' house, and now he's going home. He's going back home. Uh, here, here in chapter 6, Mark doesn't, doesn't mention his hometown, but, but earlier, if you remember in chapter 1, uh, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. So that's what he's referred to as Nazareth. Nazareth. So we know that he's going back to Nazareth. Now, just, just for clarification, uh, it, we Whenever it's, it's Christmas time, we know Bethlehem is the place. We say he was born in Bethlehem. Well, that's true, but, but all of the gospel accounts that, that record his growing up, it, it's there in Nazareth, which would have been farther north than Bethlehem, which was there around Jerusalem. And so he, he grows up in Nazareth. And, and if, you've, if you've heard of Nazareth, I can almost guarantee it's because of Jesus that you've heard of it. There's, there's really nothing else significant about Nazareth. It's, it's a lowly town, and, and Jesus is returning back home to Nazareth, to where he came from. And so Mark tells us that, that Jesus and his disciples, they, they went away from, from the house of Jairus, and they're, they're traveling down to Nazareth where, where Jesus grew up. And, and it says he, he began to teach in the synagogue. And so what, what happens, it was common in that time when, when a visitor or a guest comes who would have been considered a rabbi or someone who was, who was raised or schooled in, in the scriptures, uh, it wasn't unusual for, for them to be invited to speak at the synagogue. So that's what happened here. If you remember in the book of Acts, when, when Paul and, and some of the, the apostles are traveling around, they're, they're going into synagogues and being asked, come share with us, come share. And so this wasn't uncommon. And so Jesus, especially because he's one of their own, he's a, he's a Nazarene, they, they would have certainly invited him to speak. And so he, he starts speaking. And there, there in, in verse 2, it says that when they heard him, they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. Now, now we've been with Mark traveling. We've, we've been with Jesus, and, and we're not surprised by this response. In fact, in, in, 
in, one, in Mark 1.22, when Jesus taught in a, in a synagogue in Capernaum, this is the exact same word that's used. They were astonished. They're amazed. Jesus is teaching like someone they, they've never heard before. And so look at the first three questions that the crowd ask when they're astonished. There in verse 2, there, there's three questions. First is, where does this man get these things? Where do they come from? And, and what's the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done? And so, so they hear and they say, wow, this is amazing. But then they start asking questions about Jesus. And they start asking questions specifically about the source. How, 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 does, how does this come about from this man? How, where, where, where is this coming from? And so we don't know if they're positive or negative. I think it's just simply they're, they're amazed. They're deeply impressed. They don't know what to make of Jesus before them because they hear what's coming from his mouth and they've, they've heard witness. Maybe they've even seen some mighty works and they don't know what to make of him because the Jesus that, that they know doesn't fit with what they're hearing and seeing. And so in verse 3, this difficulty in reconciling what, what they know to be true of Jesus and what they're seeing now Things, things take a turn in their mind. Verse 3, the, the thinking takes a turn. And so look, the, the, the questions, we'll come back to these questions in just a minute, but these questions, the first three questions, they're good questions. Um, they're important questions, uh, questions that should be asked and questions that should be answered. I mean, think about, we just mentioned the, the first three questions. Uh, where, did they, these, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom giving to, given to him and how are these works done? So, so if we think about these questions, how, how would Jesus answer those questions? You, you see the three questions. Where did this man get these things? Or what's the wisdom? How, how does he do these mighty works? As, as we've been following along in the gospel, how, how would Jesus, how would Mark, how would disciples answer the, these questions? Right? They would say, well, he's the Son of God. Right? Of course he can do these things. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one with authority to, to forgive sins of, of the paralytic, like he says. Or, or he's, he's the one to, to cast out the demons from the, from the possessed man. He is God in the flesh. So th- those are the answers. And, and we, as readers, think, obviously that's clear. But, but these people, they, they, don't, they don't get that. They, they don't have those answers. And so the, the crowd in Nazareth, they, they, don't, they don't want that answer. I mean, I assume that Jesus has told them what, who he is and why he's come in the midst of his teaching. I mean, I, I don't think this is the same case, but as Jesus is proclaiming, preaching in the synagogue, Luke chapter 4 records a similar instance where he, he gets in, they, they ask him to speak, he stands up, they hand him the scroll, the reading for that week, and he reads from Isaiah. And, and in Isaiah, he basically, it's, it's about the, the anointed one that the Lord is going to send, that the Messiah that's going to come. So Jesus reads it, hands him the scroll, then he says... Today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And then he sits down. So basically, Jesus, there in, in Luke chapter 4, he's telling them, I'm the promised one. I'm the anointed one that was promised. And, and things escalate very quickly there in that scene, because by the end of it, they want to kill him. Because they hear what he's saying, and they say, that, that's not true. You, you can't be the promised one. And so here in Mark, I think a similar thing is, is taking place. They're incapable of, rec- of reconciling the Jesus that they know with what he's saying. I mean, this is the neighborhood kid. This guy that grew up down the street, he, he can't be the Messiah. I mean, he's from Nazareth of all places. What good can come from Nazareth? And so there in verse 3, their, their thinking takes a turn, and so they ask three other questions. Is not this the carpenter? Isn't, isn't this Mary's boy? Isn't, isn't the brother, isn't he the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his brothers here and, and aren't his sisters still here in Nazareth? 
In other words, th- he, he's a Nazarene. He's, he's one of us. There's nothing special about him. He's, he's got a mom and brothers and sisters just like all of us. And so they come to their conclusion. They say that he, he's wrong. He can't be who he says he is because we know who he is. And Mark says that they took offense at him. Now, two points I want to make about this. First, notice that Jesus had a mother and brothers and sisters. Right? That's, that's part of their, their thinking is he's, he's got a, a normal family. Now, this is one of the places where, where we go, where I would go, to, to contradict the belief that Mary remained a virgin forever. So some people, it's not just a Catholic thing. There, there, there are other groups who believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, part of the reason is because the Catholic Church at least worships Mary, and, and you, have to, you, you, you can't let her be stained by, by sin or, or something like that. But here, Jesus had brothers and sisters. And I would say, well, how does she have other children if she's a virgin forever? Now, there are ways that people will work around and say, well, it's just cousins. I know the word is brothers, but it's cousins. Or they'll say, well, that's from, from Joseph's first marriage. They're just stepbrothers and sisters, which, okay, I, th- I, think, that's, I, yeah, I think that's doing some, some unnecessary figuring out. He had brothers and sisters, and, and they're brothers and sisters. And, in fact, the, the logic here of the people of Nazareth, it would be working against them if Jesus wasn't born like the rest of the brothers and sisters, right? If, if it wasn't, if he hadn't come from the same womb as these other brothers and sisters, then their argument wouldn't make sense because they'd say, someone in the crowd would say, well, wait a minute, Jesus isn't like the brothers and sisters that you're talking about because he was a special one. I think, I think the logic of the people saying, he came from the same womb as those guys that we know and those sisters that are here. There, there's a couple other, there are a couple other places that we could go. I mean, I'll just mention in Matthew 125, um, where, where Matthew is talking about Joseph, and it said, he knew her not, so it talks about Mary and the, the virgin birth, and, and Matthew says that Joseph knew her not until the birth of Jesus, which implies that once Jesus was born, he knew her, and that's just not an intellectual head knowledge of her. A second one, and in, in throughout Acts, but also in Galatians, Paul writes that he refers to James as the Lord's brother again. So there, there are a number of places. If you have questions, I'd be happy to talk with you. But, but we believe that Jesus had brothers. He was, he was fully man. He was he, flesh and blood like us. But the second thing to notice here uh, in the questions of the, the Nazarenes uh, is, is that their issue with Jesus isn't necessarily his teaching, his wisdom, or his mighty works. I mean, I think they see that their issue is, how does he get that? What's the source of them? How can he, how can he teach this way, and how can he do these things? And so, so Mark doesn't, doesn't go into detail here, but it's almost like the religious leaders, when they see Jesus doing miraculous, and they say, well, well he's doing it by the, by the, by the spirit of, of Satan. He, he's doing the work of demons, because they see it, and they say, well, how, what's the source? How can, they can't deny his teaching and his miraculous works. So I think here in a similar situation, these Nazarenes refuse to accept God as the source here, and so they're only left with offense at him. You're wrong. This can't be true. And so Mark's point, and I think my point here, is simply that they refuse to accept the uniqueness of Jesus. They refuse to believe that God's anointed one could be someone from Nazareth because they knew him. So in spite of what they heard and saw, in spite of Jesus' own, own testimony, they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized the one who had grown up in their village. So they're offended. And so they quickly turn from being astonished to offended. Now, now before we move to the second question, let me, or second section, let, let me make one quick application. 
<clears throat> from these verses. Actually, I have a couple more. I have four from this, four quick ones. But the first one is, if you're here and you're not a Christian, okay, if you're here, you're, I'm glad you're here, but, but let, me, let me encourage you from, from here. From these verses, I'd want you to know that when it comes to Jesus, there are good questions to ask. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would, I would ask you to consider these questions. The first three questions that the crowd asked, they're, they're good questions. In fact, they're important questions to consider. Okay, so, so you've seen some, some if, if you've been with us through Mark's gospel, you've, you've seen Jesus do some miraculous things, you've heard some miraculous teachings, and I would simply encourage you, let, that, let what you've seen and heard drive you to ask questions, because it's good to ask questions when you see and hear things from Jesus. I mean, you should be asking yourself, how does this man do this thing? Just like the, the paralytic, who can forgive sins but God alone? How can this man claim to do that? Or how can he say that? Or how can someone stand up in a boat in a raging storm and, and calm the sea and the wind with his voice? These are good questions to ask that, that we, should be, we should be pointing people to. So if you're here not a Christian, you should, you should be entertaining these questions, asking these questions. But then... Don't be afraid to accept the testimony of Jesus himself regarding those questions. Let Jesus answer your questions because he does plainly and clearly. The testimony of the gospel writers, the New Testament apostles, they all point to simple answers. And so this, I would, I would encourage you, if you're here not a Christian, as you, as you ask those questions, consider this man was no ordinary man from Nazareth. This was God himself, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, this is God incarnate dwelling among us. That's the answer that Jesus himself would point you to, and that's the answer that I would point you to. And so as you ask these questions and you behold Jesus as, as the one, your, your astonishment doesn't turn to offense, but then it turns to worship as God in the flesh who deserves your worship. And so when it comes to Jesus, non-Christian, the right answers are the answers that lead to worship and adoration. And so, so ask these questions as, as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark together. But second application, for Christians here, I think we, I think we see that offense should, not, should be expected. So, so we don't need to be afraid or surprised by offense. Right? Jesus goes to his hometown and, and offense is, is generated. I mean, just think, just think broadly, the message of Christianity makes some pretty bold claims. Right? There's some pretty exclusive claims, and, and these claims, when met with unbelief, they're, they're offensive. And so we shouldn't be surprised, especially when it comes to Jesus. I mean, think about, think about what, what we proclaim about Jesus, what the church historically has proclaimed about Jesus, that, that he died a substitutionary death on a cross because you and me are sinners, that we, that we required a bloody Messiah, right? That's offensive. You're a sinner and you can't save yourself, but, but Jesus died to save you. That's offensive when, when people are told they're sinners or or think about uh, Jesus is the only way to God. What is that? That, that, imp- that makes a lot of implications about every other religion in the world. It's an exclusive claim. Faith in Jesus is the only hope for humanity. That's the message that we proclaim. Or Jesus is fully God. Right? No, 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 no. He, he's, he's the spirit child of, of Heavenly Father. Or, or no, 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 he's, he's the firstborn of creation, which means he was created. He's a created being. These are things that, that are offensive to people who have, who have worldviews and, and paradigms that, that don't allow for a divine human, fully God and fully man. Or just think last week was, was Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and we believe that, that a dead man got up out of the grave and walked out. That, that's ludicrous. 
our message, we, we shouldn't be surprised when, when offense is taken, but let us make sure that the offense is from the message and not us. Right? It's, it's, it's an offensive message. We don't increase the offense by our attitude or our lack of love and care, but, but we do have a message to proclaim. Thirdly, application, rejection shouldn't paralyze Christian witness. And so at the end of our passage, we see Jesus continues going. He leaves Nazareth. He goes to another town. I mean, his own hometown rejects him. How, how, how hurtful. As he's teaching, I'm sure he sees his childhood friends who are then saying, no. I'm offended at you. How dare you say those things? It'd have been easy for Jesus to be paralyzed and say, I'm done here. I can't, I can't even make headway in my own family, my own hometown. What use do I have in, in going? No, Jesus continues. He goes on to the next town. Think about the disciples who are, who are with him as they're joining him on his mission. This experience will certainly shape their perspective as they, as they face opposition or rejection and think about Mark's first audience as, as the gospel is being, is being passed around, the early churches, as they're, they're, the, the, they're the minority and, and this big Roman government is, is oppressing them and they're being, they're being um, marginalized. As they're reading this, they think, well, Jesus, Jesus was rejected too. We can do this. Take heart, church. And so, so I, I, think, I think we, from this, can, can take encouragement. Rejection doesn't mean failure. It doesn't mean failure. If someone rejects you, don't let it paralyze you. It doesn't mean that you failed. I mean, we're, we're in seed-sowing ministry. We just, we just heard about the parable of the seeds. The only failure is, is a failure to scatter, right? That's the only failure in seed-sowing ministry. And so, so here, Jesus, he encounters hard ground, unbelief. He, he's not paralyzed. Maybe, maybe some of you here, maybe you have a loved one who's hard ground, or, or maybe a neighbor or a coworker who's nothing but hard soil. Maybe, maybe you have felt or you continue to feel rejected. Don't, don't be discouraged, Christian. Continue sowing seed. Continue praying. And then connect to that, the last application uh, is that hometown ministry can be the most difficult. And so we see Jesus, those who know him the best are those who reject him. And so as we, oftentimes we experience our, our family, our spouse, those who know us, those who we grew up with, when we profess faith in Christ, they say, it's, that's faulty, that's phony, I know you. I know, you get mad, you curse, or, or I know your past. And, and those who know us best are often the most difficult places, and so it's, it's easy for us to shy away. Well, friends, we, we must not shy away. We must minister to our own hometown, those who know us best, family members, friends, kids. And so, so be encouraged. It, it's difficult and often the most difficult to minister to your family and friends and those who know you best. Well, let, let's, let's move quickly to the second passage there, verses four through six. We see the rejected prophet. So as, as we see the crowd, the, the attitude of the crowd turns and they're offended by him. And then Jesus there in verse four, he, he recognizes what's happening. So there in verse four, he, he quotes a proverb. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household. If you wanted to have a modern-day translation, you could say something like, familiarity breeds contempt. Maybe you've heard that before. Familiarity breeds contempt. So Jesus, as, as he sees the offense rising, as, as maybe he's getting feedback from, from the crowd, he's recognizing what's happening. He's recognized that, that he is the dishonored prophet here in this, in this town. He's the rejected prophet. So, so these people, they refuse to... to to see through their familiarity and, and the ordinariness of, of the man before him. 
And so their rejection, they reject him. And, and as Mark records there in verse 5, their rejection, it was costly, wasn't it? Verse 5 continues, he could do no mighty works there. And so the whole town misses out because of this response here. Once the people from Nazareth, once they made up their mind, Jesus is unable to perform mighty works. Now, this doesn't mean that he was literally unable. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was too hard for him to do. But it means that, that I think that where faith is absent that the miracles and the mighty works, they, they don't serve their purpose. If people don't believe, right, then, then no miracle is going to change their mind. I think the faith is not here. They, they're, not ta- they're not hearing and receiving my testimony. No miracle, no mighty works is going to change their mind. And, and this, this, in fact, goes, goes against what we, would, what we would think, right? Because we would think, well, people, there's unbelief. Okay, Jesus, do a miracle and then make them believe. That's, that's not how Jesus works. That's not how he operated in most cases. Now, this isn't, not every case, but in most cases, the, the, the natural progression is that faith was present prior to the miraculous and the mighty works. So think about just last week, the, the bleeding woman, she showed her faith, she displayed her faith by saying, I've got to get to him, if only I can touch him. So there's faith prior to the display. Or Jairus' daughter, he goes to Jesus, says, come heal my daughter, she's dying, then he gets where she's dead, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe. And so Jairus follows Jesus to the house, believing. So faith precedes the, the display, the mighty, mighty power. And so the miraculous actually confirms the faith that's already there. And that's how Jesus tends to operate. And so here, in Mark's gospel, we, we've just come off these mighty displays of power, and we've seen two people show extreme faith, the, the bleeding woman and Jairus, and immediately following that, we see the people who should display faith, and they're rejecting him. Uh, Mark, is, Mark is elevating this theme of rejection that's going to run throughout the rest of the gospel. And so Jesus is not accepted. He's rejected. And so before looking at the final application, look, I, I just have to comment on the aside there in verse 5. So you see there in verse 5, it, it says that he could do mighty, no mighty works there, except he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. So Mark mentions this in passing as, as if it's nothing. I want, I, want to, I want to ask you, if you're one of the sick people who are healed, is, is, this, a, is this a small, insignificant thing? Right? It would certainly be a big deal. This would have certainly been, been a big deal. So if, if it's someone besides Jesus doing that, there's fanfare. There's, wow, we, we have a miracle worker. But, but now as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark... Jesus is healing dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Scene after scene, we see him doing the unthinkable. And so now, here, when he could only heal a few, it's easy to think, well, that's not a big deal. It's still miraculous that Jesus has this power, and he's putting it on display for the people of Nazareth. But we do recognize that the healing of a few is, is only a drop in a bucket of what could have been in his hometown. Had they received him, it would have been a city, town-changing experience. But Jesus encountered not faith, not belief, but unbelief. And so Mark closes the passage with Jesus marveling because of their unbelief. He marveled at their lack of faith. And so let me close with, with two applications. Two applications and we're done. So the first application from, from this, this second passage is, is just the dangers of familiarity with Jesus. So that, that, that's what happened there. They, they thought they knew Jesus, and, and they were wrong. They were wrong. And so, so I think there's dangers of familiarity with Jesus. And as I thought about this, I immediately came up with, with just a handful of specific applications. 
And, and so I'm just going to run through some of these. And all of these specific situations are situations where, where a familiarity with Jesus can be really dangerous. And it's, it's a familiarity that, that's dangerous when it becomes a stale familiarity. So, so hear me say, we should have a familiarity with Jesus. We should know him. So don't hear me say we shouldn't know him, but, but our knowledge of him shouldn't be a stale knowledge, or it shouldn't be a stale familiarity. So listen to some examples of some situations where, where a stale familiarity with Jesus can be dangerous. First, first instance here, week after week in our corporate worship, right, as we come together week after week, we sing songs, some of them the same songs over and over. We, we, we pray prayers, we hear prayers prayed, we, we take the Lord's Supper. All of these things can, can become familiar so that we're just going through the motion. So if we're not careful, we find ourselves week after week thinking, I've heard that. I've done that. I know the spiel before the Lord's Supper. I got it. And we can zone out. And, and, and it's, it doesn't serve its purpose. Bible reading. A, a Bible reading practice. As Christians, you should hear me say that we should be giving ourselves to regular personal Bible reading. You should be intaking the Word of God on a regular basis. And as you do, it's easy to fall into routines and, and, and to read passages. If, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've Hopefully, you've read the same story more than once. And as you do, it's easy to say, well, I've heard that before. I've heard it before. It's easy to fall into a routine and a lack of newness or freshness. We, yeah, I know Jesus. I know what he did. Oh, yeah, he fed the 5,000. I got it. I know what he taught. Yeah, blessed are the peacemakers. Got it. Lord's Prayer, I prayed that before. And it's, it's dangerous because we lose sight of Jesus. For me, one that came was, if, if you're a parent here, how easy it is to assume that we've taught our children all that they need to know about Jesus. Yeah, he, he's got it. I told, I told him. He, I had him in Sunday school. I had him at Awana growing up. They, they, they've got it. But when it lacks regularity, when we don't communicate with earnestness, or we don't it, communicate from recent experience, right? so as a parent, I can say, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's son of God. He died on the cross. He was buried. He, he rose again. I can say that. But if I'm not, if I'm not interacting with that reality regularly, then it's not new, it's not fresh to me. And, and, and my kids, they, they say, well, that, dad doesn't care about that, really. He just tells me that, just t- tell me that. And, and it's no wonder we have cases of, of kids who have grown up in Christian homes who then are trying to answer life's questions, big questions, and they're turning to other sources. Because I've heard with these stale truths about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, this is what we believe. It's not an active knowledge, a, a personal familiarity with Jesus that's, that, incites, that incites interest. Same, same line evangelism. If I'm not regularly, if I'm not regularly stewing over the, the truths of the gospel that, that Jesus died for me while I was a sinner, that I didn't earn my way to God, that, that God saw me in my estate and sent his son for me, if, I, if I'm not rejoicing in those truths, when I go to tell someone else, they're going to see through it. He doesn't really believe that. He's, he's proclaiming an unbelievable gospel. Why should I believe that? We can become familiar with things, and, and it's dangerous, just like here. They thought they knew Jesus, but they really didn't. Well, then lastly, our last application, we see Jesus as the rejected one. So Jesus here is, is the, the one who's rejected by his own. And so we're going to see rejection is a recurring theme in Mark. We saw the religious leaders earlier in Mark's gospel in, in chapter 2, and then in the 3 where they want to kill him. We also saw his, his mother and his brothers who say, come on, you gotta, you got to come in. You're, you're going a little crazy, Jesus. They don't understand him. He's rejected by his own hometown here in this passage. And, and so this theme of, of opposition, of rejection, is going to run all the way through Mark's gospel. And so 
At the end, when we see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, we're not surprised. We've seen it coming because as Jesus is ministering, rejection runs throughout the gospel. He is the rejected one, the suffering servant. That was talked about in Isaiah, what we read earlier. But it's not just a recurring theme in Mark. Jesus as the rejected one is is a recurring theme in, in Scripture. I mean, think about the prophets. Maybe this afternoon, if you want some afternoon reading, go read Stephen's speech in Acts 6 and 7. Because Stephen makes this very point that, that you people, you always reject God's messengers. And he, he lists prophet after prophet who is rejected. You killed the prophets, your fathers before you killed the prophets, and, and you've killed Jesus, is what Stephen would say. And then you know what happens to Stephen after he's done talking, right? He's killed, right? So that's the theme all throughout scriptures. Think about uh, Jezebel who killed the prophets and was, was then chasing Elijah trying to kill him or or Zechariah stoned to death. Jeremiah faced extreme opposition and suffering as he was, was God's prophet. And so there's this theme of God's messengers, God's prophets who are persecuted, who are, who are rejected. And so this rejected one, the, this Jesus, his, his rejection becomes, it reaches its culmination in, in the cross, as, as we, we just mentioned, but, but his rejection actually becomes the source or the means of our salvation. And so it's a really important theme. Jesus was rejected, and because he was, we can be accepted. So if Jesus wasn't rejected, if he didn't suffer and die, then, then we have no hope. And so the, the rejection of Jesus is, is crucial for us. He was rejected for our sake. He became poor for our sake. Right? He, he suffered death, even death on a cross, for our sake. And so we should be familiar with, with the rejected one. And so as, as we read this, as Christians, we have to be careful not to, to too quickly assume the role of the faith-filled characters. So we read this, we say, I'm not like them. I'm not like the Nazarenes. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like Jairus, or I'm like the bleeding woman. Right? Maybe that's true, but, but we have to realize that at one point, we were part of the rejectors. Right? We all, we all were rejected. That's John's gospel. He came to those who were not his own, to who were his own, and he was rejected. Isaiah, what we read in chapter 53, later in, in Romans, chapter 3, he was, he was rejected. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're not clean-handed when it comes to receiving Jesus. We are with the mass of humanity that rejected him, that rebelled against him. For all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And so if you're a Christian here this morning... I just encourage you to find your place among the rejectors before finding it among the faithful. Because it's as rejectors of him that, that the fact that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That, that, that makes the goodness really good because we were rejectors, dead in sins and trespasses. And while we were in that state, God sent his son for us. And so his rejection is, the rejection of the Messiah is the means of our salvation. So Jesus took the role of the rejected one so that he might die in our place and offer us acceptable to God. And so we rejoice in this rejected one. Let's pray together.